Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 190, I believe, of Dunzo. It is me, Troy McKeady. Um, hi. <laughs> Hello. I don't know if I remember how to do this because I literally haven't done it by myself in God knows how long. I don't think I've consecutively recorded episodes with guests so many times in a row since I started the podcast. And I do want to start by just thanking everybody who came on to do an erotic thriller with me or an album review. Like, the past couple months for me have been really, really fun, to be honest with you. I also just want to acknowledge that I know some of you don't prefer the episodes where I have guests and you, like, sort of gravitate towards the ones where it's just me by myself rambling for whatever reason. So if you stuck it out, thank you for being patient with me and (laughs) allowing me to, like, live out some weird childhood fantasy where I was an MTV VJ or something. I, like, worked with Kurt Loder on MTV News. I love recording with other people. I love having other perspectives and opinions on this podcast because I think it's really important. And to be honest, like, just selfishly, I feel much closer to the people I've met through this podcast for the past few years than I do people in my real life. Like, I haven't seen my friends in a fucking year, but I've talked to my podcast friends every other day. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. I'll also be honest in saying, I love doing solo dolo episodes. You guys know that I love a moment of you and I just, like, ranting and raving and reviewing and rambling. But when I'm having, like, a real Demi Moore, St. Elmo's Fire moment where I can't see past or through my own depression the solo episodes are really impossible like just the thought of it's so daunting it's when you're depressed it's daunting to think about like getting out of bed right so to sit down in front of my computer and do a million pages of notes and look up all this stuff and then talk to myself you know into a computer screen for an hour or whatever it's just it feels impossible during those moments So that would explain why it's been so long since you've seen me by myself, but honestly, I've missed you, I've missed what we have, (laughs) and I'm really, really, really excited to cover what we're about to cover because it's going to be so fun. Also, please allow me another very, very quick side note moment just to say I am one needle stab in the arm away from being fully vaccinated, so listen, depression be gone, depression no more, I bind you. The only thing that I've ever agreed with Meghan McCain on in my entire life is that I am going to be having a hot boy summer for sure. Absolutely. I am going to be drunk on every rooftop I can find. I'm going to lean into all of the most cliche things about my age demographic. Frosé all day, bitch. Yes. Yes. Fuck. Brunch the house. Yes. Okay. Anyway, I've obviously wanted to do this girl group thing for a very long time. Um, I have a really dark fascination with the inner workings of these multi-billion dollar studio-created, fabricated hotbeds of drama, and boy groups for that matter. I mean, honestly, I feel like boy groups are more dramatic in most cases than girl groups, but I just, I love the drama of these girl groups. Like, I'm obsessed with it. There's always so much, like, smoke and mirror shit that goes on with a group like the pussycat dolls who we are discussing today um but i just think that they take it to an entirely new level because of the weird like politics of this orchestrated girl group they've always compared themselves to the spice girls which i find really interesting because i feel like they couldn't be more opposite of the spice girls because the spice girls had a career based on their individual personalities and they were encouraged to be outgoing and to be themselves and to be seen and to be heard and the whole point of the group was that they were all so magnetic and huge and larger than life whereas like with the pussycat dolls like most of them are told not to speak unless your name is nicole schwarzenberger 
And there's still all this controversy surrounding who actually sang in the group. And some of the girls have stated in the past that they weren't allowed to sing because Nicole wanted ultimate power. And Nicole has said, you know, something completely opposite. And I also think that there was this idea that the Pussycat Dolls would be this launching pad, sort of like Destiny's Child was for Beyonce. And that the other girls would have this built-in understanding that Nicole was ultimately the most important member of the group. Again, in the way that Kelly and Michelle just sort of knew, without having to admit it to the press, that Beyonce is obviously the one who's like going to become a solo star. You know what I mean? And like all of us will try, but Beyonce is guaranteed a position as a solo artist. You also, of course, of course we're going to get to this, you have the added claims, the more recent claims from some of the former members of the group that the Pussycat Dolls were nothing more than a glorified prostitution ring where they were being loaned out and traded to executives for contract signatures and career advancement. Um, some of the members have told like some really horrific stories about being drugged and waking up not knowing where they are. Um, so we're going to get to all of it. Of course, you also have to factor in that the Pussycat Dolls are one degree separated from another little group that I may or may not have mentioned on this podcast over 3,000 times called Eden's Crush. And you can't talk about the origin story of the Pussycat Dolls and not mention Eden's Crush, which, you know, it involves a, a WB show called Pop Stars from the year 2000. We have a lot to cover. I think I told you before that I find it endlessly fascinating. Like, this is one pop culture thing that will randomly pop into my mind out of nowhere, and I just tap my finger on my chin and ponder at the thought of why we we're so dead set on not allowing Nicole Schwarzenberger to have a solo career. Like, we would not allow it. We've never allowed it. In 10 years of her trying, we have always said no. We have denied her request. And if you think about it, there's absolutely no reason. <laughs> there's no good reason why we won't allow Nicole Schwarzenberger, who is so talented and so beautiful and so capable of being solo artists, like we just won't allow it, no matter how great the song is. I don't really remember a lot of Nicole's solo songs, but I know that they could, I mean, Nicole's a really good songwriter. She produces a lot of her own music and she's produced a lot of the music for the Pussycat Dolls. So like, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense. I do of course have theories about that that I wanna run by you later. I think karma may play a factor into that somehow. Um, you know, when the universe doesn't want something to happen that bad, there's got to be a reason. And I have thoughts. I want to start this week's episode by discussing the origin story of music manager slash dancer slash alleged brothel owner slash madam <laughs> Robin Anton. According to ancient scripture, Robin was working as a very successful choreographer in the 90s. And by the time she came up with the idea to start a girl group, she had worked with No Doubt, she had worked with The Offspring, Smash Mouth, she had worked with Pink, she was really successful. And she was also responsible for putting together these like big dance numbers for movies. She had direct access to what went on behind the scenes with these artists and she really got to see how they were managed, which I think is interesting and what went into marketing them as a product and like just how the sausage was made. She also just so happened to be roommates with Christina Applegate who was a major part of the Pussycat Dolls at the very beginning. Um, she was like, I guess you would say Christina Applegate was like their stand-in lead member um, at the beginning. And she was actually a really incredible, if you YouTube videos of Christina Applegate with the Pussycat Dolls, like she's a really, really good dancer. So Robin came up with the idea of enlisting a bunch of her dancer friends to start a burlesque troupe. But instead of having it be a literal striptease, she wanted it to be more like dance driven because that was her background. So much more along the lines of something like Bob Fosse would have produced or, you know, some kind of MGM old Hollywood shit. Like she really wanted it to look like something Ginger Rogers would have starred in. She was also very specific about the motif being anywhere between the 1930s and the 1950s. 
Even though I will say, I feel like the Pussycat Dolls did eventually create their own sort of, like, trashy, early 2000s, like, juicy couture, trashy lingerie, fingerless gloves thing. Like, they had a style that was so specific to them. And obviously, every truly iconic girl group has their signature looks or pieces that help sort of define them. Like, with the Spice Girls, you could say... It would be like their platform shoes and the Union Jack dress. Um, I would say, you know, with Destiny's Child, it would be those custom Tina Knowles looks. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, With TLC, back in the day, it was the condoms on their clothes. And it's just those, those little things that like are really defining for the group. And with the Pussycat Dolls as a music group, I definitely feel like it was... Like I said earlier, just like early 2000s LA trash, but like in a good way. Like when I look back at the shit that the Pussycat Dolls used to wear, specifically Nicole, it's honestly so fun. Anyway, we'll get to all of that stuff because we have to do housekeeping first. Robin Anton invited a bunch of girls to audition in her garage that she shared with Christina Applegate. And just as a quick side note, one of the things I find so interesting about the early years of the Pussycat Dolls is that they were so unconventional in what they were doing. Because at the time, people had never really seen anything like them, especially because they were, like, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but they were, like, performing Chicago-style, you know, dance numbers at the Roxy, but doing it to Bjork or Led Zeppelin. They also started off with sort of a, like, a female empowerment feminist angle because... The whole point of the Pussycat Dolls originally was that Robin wanted to reclaim stripping. Like, that was the whole thing, was that, you know, this was the mid to late 90s, and she wanted to take stripping and sort of revert back to what it was in the 50s when it was, like, you know, an art form, basically. Of course, now we've done that, like, 10 or 11 different times with all these different forms of stripping. You know, stripping is so interesting because it, like, reintroduces itself as something new every few years, But, like, this is the 90s. This is, like, before flirty girl fitness, even. (laughs) This is where we get into the, like, folklore origin story Marvel moment of the band. And I actually found this to be really interesting. So their first big break came one random night while dancing at the Viper Room. Johnny Depp just so happened to be there. And according to Robin, he was currently looking for a burlesque group to hire full time. She said that he fell in love with them immediately and he liked them specifically because they were really sexy and they did the whole like 1930s thing, the heel toe choreography, but they were doing it, like I said earlier, to fucking Iron Maiden. So Johnny Depp gave the Pussycat Dolls their start. He gave them a weekly night at the Viper Room, which eventually just became their home. Um, They danced there from 1995 to 2001. And I guess you could say their careers pretty much took off as soon as he hired them because they had celebrities and producers and photographers and video directors and all these people in the entertainment industry coming in on a weekly basis to watch them perform, which meant they were being asked to do all this random shit. Um, Like in 1999, they appeared in Playboy together. The, The girls from the Viper Room in LA, who you, by the way, would have to like live in LA to even know at this point because in 99 they weren't doing the celebrity performances so little old me little old homosexual me in Ohio like I wouldn't have known who the fuck they were eventually they were hired by the Roxy to also dance a couple nights a week and uh I mean when you factor in that Christina Applegate was literally performing with them on stage when they started if you think about it we're still at this point at the height of Kelly Bundy mania So Christina Applegate was really famous. Married with Children was off the air in 97. So, like, she was one of the most famous people in the country. It's also important to note that as a dancer, it was such a major deal to be asked to perform with the Pussycat Dolls, even if it was, like, you know, once or twice, or maybe, like, once a week or something, or maybe it was once ever, but it was a huge thing. And you would see these girls you know, go from being completely obscure and nobody knowing who they were to then dancing with them a couple nights a week and then being asked to perform with some pop star at an award show or on tour. Or even better, you would see them be asked to, like, choreograph a tour for somebody. 
I would say the Roxy is where you really saw celebrities start doing guest appearances and stuff. And this is when the Pussycat Dolls became fully realized. And when you had, you know, Charlize Theron and Christina Aguilera and Pam Anderson. I mean, it's iconic. Like, Kelly Osbourne and Britney and all these people, like, begging to do a night with the Pussycat Dolls. It was crazy. It was such a fun time. Carmen Electra also became their sort of pseudo-leader. Um, I think Carmen Electra ended up performing with them more than any other celebrity, and she was with them every other night for two straight years. And I honestly think Carmen Electra was a huge reason they got put on the map. I mean, especially this is like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, Carmen Electra. She's super, super famous. Um, take me back. Take me the fuck back. My God. One of the most interesting things about the Pussycat Dolls, and you guys either all know this and you're going to make fun of me and I don't deserve to have a podcast or none of us know this collectively and that would be really chic, but did you know that Gwen Stefani is the reason the Pussycat Dolls became a girl singing group? Gwen Stefani is directly the reason that the Pussycat Dolls became a singing group? So as legend states, When Gwen Stefani was asked to perform with the Pussycat Dolls, she was the one that, she was the first celebrity that came up with the idea of like fully singing and not doing like a hey big spender. Like she really was going to do like a full on performance and turn the Pussycat Dolls into a band. So once it was decided that she was going to sing with them, obviously her management came. So Jimmy Iovine and Ron Fair who you may know from my Christina Aguilera series as Christina's henchmen, they showed up. And the rest is kind of history. Jimmy Iovine looked at Robin Anton. Robin Anton looked at Ron Fair. Ron Fair looked at Jimmy Iovine. And they were like, let's make some fucking money. When they originally decided they were going to turn them into a pop group, they obviously wanted Carmen Electra to lead the group, which would have made complete sense at the time. I mean, the Pussycat Dolls really did kind of become like a second career for her at the time it was what she was known for and it would have been really interesting in like I don't know maybe sort of clickbaity before clickbait was a thing because the new story of Carmen Electra returning to music for the first time since Prince made her you know Carmen Electra it just would have been really cool unfortunately they were not willing to pay Carmen Electra enough And she said during an interview that she wasn't willing to take the, quote, financial hit. So that whole thing was messy because she went on to try and start her own burlesque group called the Bombshells, which, you know, Robin Anton was none too pleased about. Carmen said in an interview during the time, Dave looked at me and said, why don't you get your girls together and put together a little dance show and then you guys can open up for us. Recalls Electra, who has been dancing since high school, the same Ohio school Nick Lachey attended. So I got really excited and called all the girls I knew who were dancers in LA. Uh, It's got to have a little of that burlesque undertone so you will still get get the sexiness and a little bit of the striptease element, but more modern with some hip-hop beats and some different cool stuff. Now, (laughs) I'm rubbing my hands together. I mentioned earlier that we wouldn't be able, I'm like so excited, that we wouldn't be able to do this episode without fully going there with Eden's crush. Especially because Nicole was one of the only girls recruited to join the Pussycat Dolls simply based on her time in this band and on this television show, Pop Stars. In order to remember the show, Pop Stars, I feel like you have to fall perfectly into a very specific millennial age pocket. So, first, let me explain what the show was to the people who aren't familiar. Pop Stars was a singing competition show that aired in, like, er, I wouldn't say early 2001 in the U.S., but the show actually originated in New Zealand. And to this day, it remains the most recreated, reproduced, repackaged, bootlegged the house television show format of all time. This was the show that literally inspired the Idols series So, like, yeah, Popstars created a fucking monster. When I sat down to do notes for this episode, I was thinking about the impact singing competition shows used to have on the world in the early 2000s and how impossible it is really to explain that to somebody in 2021 who 
was too young or maybe wasn't born yet. And, you know, I've said many times in the podcast that the early seasons of American Idol felt very much like a political race. Like, if you're a young person who can't, like, wrap your head around the entire country watching one single show at one time, it was like the feeling of sitting to watch, like, political shit happen. Like, and honestly, I don't even know if that compares. Because I don't even think as many people sit and watch, like, a really important presidential press conference now as they did back in the day. So it's really just, it's really hard to explain. People were so emotionally invested in their favorite contestants winning those shows in such an intensely, like, line-crossing way. Like, it was so unwell. And if you don't believe me, look no further than the Claymates, who at one point were, like, ready to fucking die for Clay Aiken, like ready and willing to jump on any bomb in his way and had no problem telling Matt Lauer that they would die for him at 6.30 in the morning while they're like beating on the windows at the Today Show. With that being said, I do feel like pop stars and making the band were on an even crazier level because you got to watch this group work out all of their kinks And, you know, it was beyond them going on stage and, like, progressively becoming a better singer or, like, learning how to command the microphone or whatever. It was seeing them get picked out of thousands and thousands of people. You got to watch them learn choreography. You got to watch them get their hair and makeup done for the first time and have their first photo shoot experience and be recognized for the first time. And you really got to watch them, like, It was such a manipulative thing, and I talked about this with my friend Jesse Shambly when we talked about Ashley Simpson, but, like, you got to watch them record the album, and, you know, it made you feel this connection to the songs, so then when you went out to buy it, it was like you were buying something that you should already own. So not only were you emotionally invested, like you would be with any singing competition show when they've only been on for a year, but you also felt this major connection to their their success so if the album did well it's because of you it's because you begged your parents for 20 fucking dollars to buy a single and you walked to target this may be a personal experience but you walked to target or whatever with your book bag and you bought the eden's crutch cd and felt very proud to slam it down on the counter the concept of releasing a pop group to the world and knowing that you've marketed them in this really manipulative way where you've essentially given teenagers no choice but to pick a favorite, then you factor in that you've watched these people develop who they are for five months on TV before, you know, you've gotten your hands on their album. So, like, that's insane. That's like dangling a steak. Also, factor in that this is the first time you've ever seen anything like this on TV in history. So not only are you entertained, but you're getting a bird's eye view into the entertainment industry. You're finally getting to see how it all works. And you truly believe in the deepest parts of your spirit that you're seeing everything. Like, the curtain is fully being pulled back and you are seeing everything. This is how all of it works. It's also 2001, so none of it feels contrived. None of it feels fake or forced or scripted. It's just organic and raw and docu-series and you're lucky to uh, have had the experience. Imagine living in a world where you aren't rotted and grizzled by 15 years of watching the same show get reimagined over and over and over so you're just waiting with your wallet open like what do i need to buy when do i need to buy it and how much will it cost because i'll make it work eden's crush consisted of five members anna maria yvette rosanna nicole and miley And even though it was never directly stated on the show, they never like boldly said this, but Eden's Crush was supposed to be some sort of like exotic response to all of the white pop stars that were coming out. And by the way, I love when the industry uses the term exotic to describe people who aren't white. (laughs) It's like when you don't know somebody's race and they're really pretty, they're exotic. But they did all come from really unique backgrounds. There was no token member of the group. And that was pretty revolutionary for the turn of the millennium. I watched a few of the important episodes on YouTube. And uh, it was hilarious because it's almost like 
this show almost feels like a parody of a singing competition show mostly because none of the cliches have been drilled into our heads yet so it's like you know it's somebody really boldly singing i try by macy gray in a tube top and we've never seen this happen on tv before so it's like really it's just it's so cringy the show is extremely quaint it is very cheap (laughs) the budget is very low and the entire time the voiceover is like he sounds like troy mcclure he's like in order to become a pop star you've got to know how to do some funky choreography with a sexy edge today the girls will be getting dance lessons from jamie reinhardt he's worked with major artists like deborah cox Today's pop acts know that if you're going to walk out on stage, it's got to be in style. The girls are getting paired with Chevon Nildo. She's responsible for the hottest looks you've seen on the latest magazines. Also, by the way, one thing I forgot about the show was that David Foster is heavily involved. And he's the person the winners get to write a song with. So, the man who produced I Will Always Love You and My Heart Will Go On also was the creative director of the Eden's Crush Pop Stars album. It was also wildly transparent because I don't think the producers at that point knew what they should be hiding or what they shouldn't show. So in the last episode, we see the girls move into a house together. None of them are getting along. For the last like two or three episodes of the show, they don't even like each other. And the whole narrative is about how they can't believe that they're stuck dealing with each other, basically. And we hear them talk about how they're on, you know, this intensely strict diet and how, you know, I think the day that they move in is like the last day they're allowed to eat. And then the next day they get put on a diet by the label of no carbs, no sugar, and um, no dairy. They also get put on this immediate lockdown, obviously, which that makes sense so that the world can't, like, see them or know who won the show. They also had to record their album in, like, two days because they needed the first single to correlate with when the the show would premiere or whatever. It was just so contrived and psychotic, and it's a really good watch. If you're bored, I highly suggest you watch Pop Stars because they have every episode on YouTube. Another really interesting thing I found about this show was that Nicole was so highly favored, even with this group. Like, it started so early for her. And there's a moment in the final episode where the girls are being given parts for their debut single, Get Over Yourself, which is available on iTunes. And the producers are sort of, like, feeling them out and, you know, without saying it, like, they're placing them where they feel like they belong on the song based on, like, their level of talent. And at one point he's like, you know, we ended up putting Nicole on the first verse uh, to open up the song because of her natural ability. She has a very natural pop voice and she's very vocally talented. Um, My Lee, on the other hand, you know, she's not on the same level as Nicole. So we're using her as the deep voice underneath all the layers, like just so blatant. And like, I don't know, it was so messy. And they show these really candid conversations between the girls where they talk about how they don't want a lead member of the group. And they're talking about Nicole while she's sitting there pretending that it's not about her. And like, you know, one or two of the other girls maybe, but mostly Nicole. They also keep making them sing in a Britney voice, but they're calling it a pop voice. Because as we've talked about many times on this podcast, like the Britney voice just sort of became known as the pop, the pop voice of the time. But they're, they're making all of the girls sing in this version of a Britney voice, and it's so funny to watch. Eden's Crush released Get Over Yourself in March of 2001, and it debuted at number eight on Billboard. It was a massive success. They also opened for NSYNC on their Pop Odyssey tour, and Jessica Simpson during her Dream Chaser show. I think Eden's Crush is such a perfect example of how messy the music industry can be, Because their record label, this is fucking insane. So their record label, London Sire Records, was created in 1999. And it was the byproduct of these two other labels, London Records and Sire Records, which are both owned by Warner Music Group. Who cares? So Eden's Crush was released to the public, was this massive success. And actually, 
performed really well. Their album did really good. It was written by David Foster. That's a great thing to, that's, I mean, that's a feather in your hat or whatever. And, you know, and they were also really talented. Then out of nowhere, a year into them being famous, they were basically told that they had to break up because their record company was filing bankruptcy and closing. So like they created this group and then the, a year later, they created this group on national television, put all this money and emphasis into them and had David Foster write them an album and all of this pomp and circumstance went into making this, you know, this big massive group. And then a year later they were like, oh no, you guys literally have to break up. <laughs> You have an album that's been on Billboard, but like, sorry. They released a second single, but no promo went into the song because the label knew that they were closing up shop. So they basically released as much as they could. They collected as much coin as they could collect and they locked the doors. So despite their success, they were forgotten about almost as soon as they were released to the public. They all pursued music after, of course, but none of them were obviously as successful as Nicole. Um, Yvette did some red carpet stuff for E! with Ryan Seacrest the following year. Um, I think they all teach dance classes now, I want to say. Nicole said years later that she was actually happy that the label filed bankruptcy because she had had a taste of fame and like kind of wasn't into it. By the end of their run, I mean, the girls hated her. They had absolutely no control over anything they were doing or saying or wearing or singing or the way that they were posing. Like, this was a really manufactured group. And she was also in a relationship with Nicholas Hexum of 311 fame. So naturally, he was her main concern. Apparently, Nicholas was extremely controlling and just sort of started managing her career without asking her. So like telling her what, you know, gigs she could take and, you know, auditions she was allowed to go on. Um, he took on the responsibility of turning down contracts for her. So when Will I Am reached out to Nicole and asked her to join the Black Eyed Peas, um, Nicholas told him no, which means there's this strange world version of the Black Eyed Peas where Nicole said yes, and, like, that's weird because it also works, you know? Like, that would have worked. And who knows? I mean, and then Fergie wouldn't have growled her way into our hearts. I mean, it's too much. Nicole's life very quickly became sleeping with the enemy, if you will. Except instead of um, making sure that, like, towels were lined up or soup cans were twisted, his whole gig was never being home and controlling her life and career from across the country for no reason. He eventually wouldn't allow her to accept any work. So for three years, she basically sat in their empty apartment because he was never home and didn't work. And she just wrote music. Nicole and 311 Guy broke up by summer of 2003. And around the same time, the Pussycat Dolls were doing their rebrand. So the Gwen Stefani moment had happened and... The Dolls had become this pop culture institution in L.A. Carmen had just turned down the opportunity to front the band. And the word is officially out on the street that Robin Anton is turning the Pussycat Dolls into a pop group. And auditions are happening and things are things are fucking happening. Here's the thing. Before we even get into this, without ever blatantly saying it, Robin has always been pretty honest about the fact that Nicole was favored by everybody. Everybody loved Nicole. Robin loved Nicole. Jimmy Iovine was obsessed with Nicole. Ron Fair loved Nicole. The executives at the label were just inside her asshole. Everybody was obsessed with Nicole. And to be honest, like, I get it. I've personally been reminded of how fucking talented Nicole Schwarzinger actually is. Just from like watching all these old clips and watching her audition for Eden's Crush. And I mean, it's real. And you know, the music videos for the Pussycat Dolls are honestly so good. So to say that this girl had star power is such an understatement. Like, and also, by the way, let's not skim over the fact that she's now been a part of two 
re- I mean, really intense girl groups, really intense girl group situations. And she's been highly favored in both groups so much that the people in charge of the group put her ahead of everybody in a way that is blatantly disrespectful. Like they have so much faith in her that they're like, fuck you guys, Nicole's here. And obviously we're going to talk about all of the infighting betwixt the Giddles because I mean, you know, it's kind of why we're here. And I'm just, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by watching these old Pussycat Dolls interviews and literally watching these girls like be asked a question by an interviewer and then looking over at Nicole and waiting for the head nod that they're allowed to answer the question. Like, it really is crazy. And I can't believe that this happened in front of our faces for so long. And we just sort of didn't question what was going on. Like, there were rumors and whispers and people talked about, you know, if the other girls do anything, but we didn't really talk about it. Let's talk about the other members of the original group and what their whole gig was. Um, So the group was split between singers and dancers. I don't think the dancers ever sang. And then the singers were really just sort of like glorified dancers for the group. So there was um, Karmit Bashar, I think is how you say her last name. Um, who you may know as the OG redhead of the group. Like, I just know her as the one that has Kool-Aid red hair. Um, she was a dancer. I don't know if she ever sang sang. Um, Jessica Sutta, aka... Okay, so she's the one who always had, like, the signature blunt cut bangs. Do you remember that girl? There was the girl that always had, like, a blunt cut moment. And also was really good at leg shit. Another dancer. Um, Ashley Roberts, a.k.a. The Blonde One. Um, She was also on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. She was another dancer. Um, She's been very vocal about, you know, them not being allowed to talk and how much of a bitch Nicole was and how evil she was and cutthroat and fame hungry and blah, blah, blah. Um, Kimberly Wyatt, a.k.a. The Rocker Chick One. Remember the one that had like short spiky hair? Also known for, I think Kimberly was like mostly known for the leg shit. I don't know if the Pussycat Dolls ever took a photo or performed on stage without Kimberly Wyatt doing that sideways split with her leg up in the air. I mean, it's iconic. Then you have Melody Thornton. Um, Melody is one of the singers and... If I have to explain who Melody is to you, like, you are in the right place at this moment because you needed this episode in your life. But Melody is the the singer who is best known for trying to take over as lead vocalist during the 2006 American Music Awards, while at the same time, Nicole is trying to stand in front of her and drown her out. And, I mean, it was very much giving Lil Mama crashing the stage Uh, with Jay-Z and Alicia Keys when they performed in New York. Like, very much Troublemaker. uh, Aubrey O'Day energy, I stan. As soon as the Pussycat Dolls were formed, the girls were given the rundown on what to expect as members of the group. They were basically told that Nicole would not only be the front and center at all times, but that she would be lead vocalist on every song. Um, And this, by the way, this is not like a you know, a Justin Timberlake, J.C. Chazé lead vocalist situation where, you know, one of them does a fucking, uh, a heel spin and then twists around while the other one, you know, comes forward and now they're performing Digital Digital Get Down and J.C.'s the lead. This is like, you guys will never stand in the front of that band. You will never have a lead vocal on any of these songs. You will never sing a chorus (laughs) and you won't talk. In one of the documentaries I watched, Ron Fair literally says, he said, it's very simple. When you have Shaquille O'Neal on your team, you give him the ball. When you have Eric Clapton in your band, he plays the guitar solo. It's a simple formula. You follow the heat and Nicole was the heat. I also haven't mentioned this so far and now feels like a good time to bring it up because it's a major part of this crazy story. Also, trigger warning for anybody listening who doesn't like hearing about eating disorder stuff. Um, 
But I think you know by now that, you know, this entire podcast is one giant trigger warning. So take that for what it is. But Nicole was suffering from a really intense eating disorder during her time in the Pussycat Dolls, specifically bulimia. And I watched a bunch of documentaries about her and about them as a band. And, you know, in one of them, she talks about the first photo shoot they did together as a group. And, you know, she was given lingerie and, like, garters and heels. And she ended up just, like, walking away and having a full-on panic attack in front of everybody. So the girls, the photographer, Robin, the label executives. And these are people who, I mean, first of all, the band has basically been told, this girl's so much better than all of you, that, like, don't even question whether or not you'll be able to be seen in this group you are a bookend and then you have these executives that are investing all this money into the the band because of nicole robin anton has placed all of her bets on you i mean there's all this pressure and during their first photo shoot she's like running out of the room hysterically crying and i can't imagine what that felt like for everybody like what an awkward a tense moment for every single person involved and how pissed off would you be if you're one of the other girls who don't you know you don't know at this point that she has this you know life-threatening eating disorder and like you think that she just can't take a picture like that moment is wild to me and I, I can't wait for the movie but this photo shoot was the start of an eight-year death-defying eating disorder and it's crazy when you look back because it's almost like it makes complete sense in the fact that, you know, Nicole had been performing her entire life, which means she had been auditioning for probably as long as she could remember and was rarely in spaces where she saw anyone who looked like her. Nicole is a like six foot tall, glamazon, Filipino, Hawaiian woman with this beautiful, shiny dark raven hair that cascades down her back flawless beautiful skin incredible voice um but everybody that she auditioned around to be in the music industry was blonde and tiny and blue-eyed just based on things i've heard her say in the past i think she grew up having some really major identity issues and she really, really, really hated herself. And I almost feel like she was resentful in in many ways of her nationality because of the way it affected her self-esteem. Now we have to talk about the debut single from The Dolls. It's a little ditty. You may have heard of it. You may not. You have to know a guy who knows a guy. It's called Don't Ya. You may have rocked your hips to it in 2005 this song actually has a really, really interesting backstory. Don't You was actually written and produced by CeeLo Green and a woman named Tori Alamaze, I think is how you say her name. Alamaze? Alamaze? Um, and apparently she used to do background vocals for Outkast and they recorded this song and released it. This actually was a song that was like released by another person not even that long before the Pussycat Dolls. And this was supposed to be like a big, you know, introduction to the industry song for this girl, but it didn't really do a whole lot and she sort of faded into obscurity. So then this guy named Doug Morris, who was the chairman of Universal Music, reached out to CeeLo Green and asked him to re-record and reproduce the song for this upcoming band named the Pussycat Dolls. According to CeeLo Green, at the time, he didn't want to work with them because he saw it as a waste of time. He thought that they were going to be some sort of like one-hit wonder, you know, Old Navy fitting room kind of moment. Um, he basically admitted to doing it only because he wanted the uh, the industry connection to Universal Music Group. The song was also turned down by Paris Hilton for her debut self-titled album. Don't you is interesting when you think about it solely in the context of it being a massive debut single from a girl group and how the song sort of describes their group identity in a way. I did a Spice Girls episode with my friend Michael Kadosh from the Planet 2000s podcast. Shout out to Michael. He brings me a great deal of joy every day on the internet. Um, but he and I talked about Wannabe and how the song perfectly explains 
who the Spice Girls are to a listener who doesn't know them yet. You know from that song that that's a really powerful, self-assured girl group who believe in putting their female friendships before their romantic relationships. They believe in their friendships being the most important relationships in their lives. And the Pussycat Dolls, on the other hand, is a band that is literally built around the male gaze. They are a band that is an offshoot of a burlesque group. Their band identity is the male fantasy. And Doncha is so unapologetically sexy. It's a song that has no, you know, what's interesting because it's like, it's a song that has no hidden meanings or hidden agenda. Like it's very upfront about what it is and what it's trying to convey and who these girls are. This isn't no scrubs. You know what I mean? This isn't independent women. And they went on later to release songs like that. But as a debut single, like who are we as a group? This is it. It's don't you want to fuck me? <laughs> you want to fuck me, right? That's the, that's the brand identity. I'd fuck her. The song was obviously wildly successful. It won a Billboard Award in 2006. It was the top selling single of the year in 2005. It's been ranked by so many publications as one of the best songs of the 2000s. Um, Billboard ranked it the 29th most successful song by a girl group in history. It's certified platinum for selling over a million copies. And, you know, without question, it's one of the most recognizable songs, I think, just generally of all time. And it was technically released in April, but in my opinion, it's an iconic song of the summer. Because when I think of the song Don't Ya, the first thing that comes to mind for me is summer of 2005. This song reminds me of being 16 and, you know, illegally day drunk with my friends doing ratchet MySpace shit and taking MySpace pictures. And yeah, I do have a very personal connection to this song and I would love to tell you about it if you will allow me. So I've told you guys before that in high school, I was a professional manny uh, for a wealthy woman that I will call Deborah. Um, and one random day in the middle of the summer, I was at her house babysitting, uh, her child and she came home in one of her like signature cachet dresses that had like a cape on it, you know, like a train for no reason. And she leaned on the counter and gave me this very like mischievous sort of like seductive smile, which like, she was like a Lisa Vanderpump to me. Like I was Cedric and she was Lisa. If that kind of gives you an idea of like our dynamic and um, she looks at me and she goes, <laughs> mind you, I'm like 16 years old and my mom barely even knows where I am because I'm like at this person's house all the time. And she looks at me and she goes, she goes, let's say fuck it and go to Chicago tomorrow. <laughs> I had never been to Chicago and I'm 16. And I was like, okay. And she goes, I'll say that her, her fiance's name was Kyle. She goes, we'll take Kyle's credit card and say fuck it. And I was like, okay. So then I stayed the night and the next morning we went to Chicago. It just so happened to be Pride, which we didn't plan, but we were obviously living for. Me as a closeted little 16-year-old boy, it was Dorothy leaving Kansas. I was like, oh, that's what a go-go boy is. Like, they don't just exist on the real world. I mean, I was in heaven. And this song played so many times that it was the only thing I could think of when we left. I mean, this song immediately transports me back to Chicago Pride 2005. And I mean, at that point, I think it had been out for like two months or something. So every single drag queen, every go-go boy, every bar, every restaurant, every store, everybody was playing don't ya over and over and over and none of us were ever sick of it we were living for the gig i don't think anybody could have predicted the pussycat dolls success or that they would hit so hard because if you think about it they had everything working against them as a band but every song they released was massively successful to the point that like a couple of them became I would say decade defining songs like yes we will get to buttons in a minute trust me 
Another thing I find really interesting about the Pussycat Dolls is that they did the Britney thing where you release a really straightforward, raunchy song about sex and then you follow it up with a sentimental ballad. Again, this is a band that unapologetically leans into the male gaze and being every man's fantasy. So it makes complete sense that they played with the Madonna whore thing during their debut because it worked so well. They followed up Don't You with Stick With You which is honestly such a beautifully written, underappreciated ballad. Stop listening to me for a second and please go play uh, Stick With You. I'm not kidding. Stop my voice, pause me, and please go listen to Stick With You in its entirety. Like, what a good pop ballad. Oh my God. That song was really loved by critics, some of which said it was like one of the best pop ballads written in years. I think it forced people to see them in a different light, especially because Doncha had such one-hit wonder energy. That's the other thing about the Pussycat Dolls is that you hear a song like Doncha, you look at a band like that, and you hear where they, they stem from, and you're like, okay, they'll have maybe two songs at the very most. They may end up with a song in the Brat soundtrack if they're lucky. I'll also just really quickly say that they released the song Beep featuring Will I Am. Um, it didn't perform as well as the previous two, but it did become their third single to reach top 20 on Billboard. Um, we can immediately move past that because who cares? I want to talk about buttons, obviously. In my humble opinion, the Pussycat Dolls could have released Don't Ya. And like I said, if we had never heard from them again, it wouldn't have been the most shocking thing in the world, right? But the fact that they released two other songs that performed so well but didn't necessarily live up to like the extreme hype of Doncha or whatever. That also makes complete sense. It's like, you know, Doncha was major. We've seen that story a million times and that group typically fades into obscurity. They release songs that are like less and less popular and then all of a sudden we never hear from them again and nobody cares. To me, Buttons really cemented the Pussycat Dolls as pop culture phenomenons. I also think visually the music video helped them become fully realized. Because Buttons is the Pussycat Dolls in their truest form to me. Like doing the thing that they're the best at doing. And that music video perfectly sums up what they're supposed to be, which is this like, you know, spinoff of a burlesque troupe with heavy R&B influences. Their debut album sold over 9 million copies, and it made them the biggest girl group in the entire world at the time. And I will say, I definitely remember by the time this song came out, there was a lot of conversation surrounding what this group was supposed to be. Was it Nicole Scherzinger and the Pussycat Dolls, or were they all active participants? Do they all sing? Some of them I've never heard talk, which is weird. Um, they've been interviewed enough times that you would think we would at least know what all their voices sound like, their speaking voices. Um, people started noticing that some of the members never put the microphone up to their mouth when they were performing live. And it was really confusing because when they would ask Nicole about it, she would, of course, act like they she didn't know what they were talking about and everything was equal and their sisters and blah, blah, blah. But that was so clearly not the case. It was also painfully obvious that the other girls were being told not to talk. I mean, it was like, at a certain point, it was like an elephant in the room. And the Pussycat Dolls have, without question, some of the most awkward interviews I think I've ever seen, to be honest. Nicole's dominance over the group is so apparent and so intense. And the girls constantly, like I said earlier, look at her for approval if they can talk and and then you have moments very similar to the 2006 AMAs where one of the girls, usually Melody, would decide to go rogue. She'd be like, fuck it. What do I have to lose? You know what I mean? That award show moment that we all know is definitely not the only time that that happened. Now, this is where things get particularly interesting, and I'm really excited that we're going to be ending this week's episode on this note. We have to finally get into the conversation of why Nicole Scherzinger has never worked as a solo artist. The, the most interesting thing to me. And I have theories, like I told you earlier. So Nicole wrote and produced a bunch of music for a solo album, right? 
And after they released the Pussycat Dolls debut album, she immediately wanted to break out on her own and become this individual star by herself. She had put in the work. She wrote the songs. She produced the songs. She was already in another girl group that, you know, dispersed. She was ready to go out by herself. So she released Baby Love featuring Will I Am. And the song did amazing in other countries, but it didn't chart in America at all. And when you look at how poorly it was received in comparison to the Pussycat Doll songs, by the way, songs that were released a month prior, it's actually pretty insane. And I have several theories and I'm very excited to run them by you. Okay, so theory A. I definitely think that Nicole had allowed the label and the executives and Robin Anton to hype her up in a way that made her completely out of touch with her own reality, right? For the past six years, this girl has been, you know, the favorite of every label executive she's ever come across. All of the managers that they've ever worked with are obsessed with her. Like I said, they live in her anal cavity, you know, leading her to believe that no pop group is complete without her as their lead. And this, she has every right to think so because... According to the industry, it's true. And according to record sales, it is true. By this particular point, Nicole herself was this huge sex symbol. I mean, everybody had pictures of Nicole Scherzinger on their wall as teenagers. Like, she was just one of those posters. You know what I mean? And of course, there was like the other pussycat dolls, but people were in love with Nicole. Theory B that I find very fascinating is that, okay, so whenever women make attempts to leave girl groups, like I obviously compare them to Beyonce, right? Because she's the greatest to ever do it. Maybe second to Diana Ross or whatever. That's a conversation for another day. You know that Beyonce and her family had known for at least a decade that she would eventually have a solo career, right? There was no member of that family or Destiny's Child that didn't know Beyonce would at some point go out on her own. The major difference, though, is that Beyonce was extremely strategic about the timing of her solo career. Beyonce and her dad were smart enough to know that it would make absolutely no sense to release a debut album in a group and then immediately follow it up with a solo album. Like, even hearing myself say that out loud, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, a boardroom of people thought that was a smart thing to do? If I were her manager, I would have told her to start appearing on other artists' songs because I feel like that's a huge milestone for the lead of, like, a girl group or a boy band. You know, you you do a song with 3LW and talk about your Tims and Baggy Jeans and Thug Appeal, like... You know what I mean? Like when you think that you're the lead of the group, you go do songs with other artists to show like, look, I do other things. I would have even advised her to do some music projects. Like remember when Beyonce starred in Carmen the Hip Hopera for MTV? (laughs) Shit like that, like music projects, whatever they may be, Hairspray on NBC Live, like whatever. Just to appear on, you know, a music soundtrack or even when Beyonce did Fighting Temptations. Something to differentiate yourself, but you don't release an entire fucking album a month into people learning who you are as a person in a girl group. Nicole said that she came to the realization that the people wanted the Pussycat Dolls and not her. And it's like, uh, yeah, duh, bitch. Nobody knows who you are. Like, we barely know you. And maybe not everybody watched pop stars on the WB. So you can't just assume that everybody knows, you know, that you wanted to be a solo artist for a long time and that you deserve it because of all your hard work. And, you know, they don't know that you were the favorite in Eden's Crush too. So you, you, you know, you've proven yourself. Maybe people don't know that. Maybe they've only known you to have four songs with a girl group. Like, it's just so asinine to me. I don't, I just don't understand it. I think it's very telling of Nicole's personality, I guess. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's very presumptuous to be like, I'm finally giving the world what they want. More me. I'm going to leave you with what I found to be the most fascinating thing that I learned so far. So what I didn't know was that 
Nicole used all of the music that she wrote and produced herself for her solo album as music for the second Pussycat Dolls album. So the entire album is Nicole's solo album. So it's no wonder (laughs) that she feels ownership of this band when they're literally performing music that she wrote about her life. And it also creates such an unfair power dynamic in the group that that's this group that's already fragmented. They're like, okay, well, just so you guys know, not only is Nicole now the most famous member of the group, the only one that people know and the only one that people have ever heard sing, we're actually going to use a bunch of songs about her life as your next album. Like what? The album went on to sell 6 million copies and... I mean, that has to be such a crazy blow to your ego and such a mindfuck because you know that these songs would not have done well if she released them on her own. And that is really fucking interesting because the public would rather see you perform these exact songs with five girls who don't really do a whole lot. They would rather that than you on your own on stage for whatever reason. What I'm going to leave you with this week is a moment that Nicole describes as the all hell broke loose era of the Pussycat Dolls, and you'll understand in a minute. So for one thing, the label has now burrowed itself even deeper into her rectum. Um, She's getting full on solo pop diva treatment while the other girls are being treated like background singers. She's completely isolated and protected by the label. For example, when they show up places, Nicole is getting her own trailer while the other girls are being told they need to share. Um, During fittings, Nicole has a team of people working around her like she's going to the fucking Met Gala to go on like Regis and and Kelly um, while the other girls are just like digging through wet seal bins for fingerless gloves. As you may or may not remember, the Pussycat Dolls did release a song on the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack called Jai Ho which is incredible. And apparently this was going to be a single from Nicole's solo project. Nicole wrote and produced this song with Ron Fair. Alone, nobody else. And they knew that the song would be really good, but they also knew that it wouldn't perform well if she released it on her own. So they decided to rework the song and include the Pussycat Dolls. So according to Nicole, who consistently paints herself as this innocent, helpless, bullied victim, said that she thought it would only make sense to release the song as the Pussycat Dolls featuring Nicole Schwerzinger, which, you know, it's complicated because you can't help but see both sides. From the perspective of the Pussycat Dolls, they don't understand why she's so adamant on separating herself from the group when they're doing so well. They're breaking world records. They're the most famous and successful girl group in the world. They've been nominated for VMAs and Grammys, etc. Um, you know, and they're also, by the way, not getting paid at all, which is something I think we'll talk about next week. But I think it plays into what I mentioned earlier about Nicole allowing the favoritism to go to her head. And, you know, she's consistently had issues with the girls not doing as much work as she does which I understand but then the girls have all said that they would beg to do more work they would beg to you know creatively be involved and sing more and come up with lyrics and maybe choreograph something they're all dancers so like they wanted to be involved creatively but Nicole wouldn't allow them to but on the other hand (laughs) This is her song. She wrote this song and produced it herself. It's her song. So no matter what it says in the fine print, like she did, this is her work. And I know that I keep saying this, but I just can't imagine what it feels like to have people worship you when you're one of six, but not on your own. According to Nicole, the girls hadn't even heard their album until she and Ron Fair invited them into the studio to play it for them. (laughs) So they sat and listened to their album in its 
entirety for the first time together. And Ron even said, like, in the, in, I think it was the behind, behind the music episode, he said, like, none of them ever sang. Um, he admitted that Melody did sing every once in a while, but it wasn't really enough to consider it, like, an active involvement. It honestly just makes the AMA performance that much more iconic for me, if you want the, the God's honest truth. Because if Melody is the only one who's allowed to have a microphone that's turned on, she knows that she's taking one for the team by standing in front of Nicole and saying, bitch, fuck you. You know what I mean? And like, was she shrill and off key? Of course she was. Did she look a damn fool? Uh-huh, for sure. But it was her way of saying, I only get these moments on occasion. So like, I'm gonna take it. And bitch, I don't give a fuck. If you're upset that I'm performing right now on stage, sorry. The audacity. Melody literally said, this one's for the girls who have ever had a broken heart. She took one for the team. And it, it just makes me respect her even more. Um, We're an hour and five minutes in. I think I'm going to stop here. Next week, I would love to talk more about the AMAs because Melody has spoken about it for the first time recently. Um, I want to talk, obviously, about the infighting. I want to talk about the prostitution claims i want to talk about all the things and yeah i'm really excited to be doing this i'm happy that it's just us again for a few weeks or however long this will take and uh i love you and i'll see you next week bye thank you for listening to dunzo this podcast is a part of the solid listen network please take a moment to rate review and subscribe if you haven't already Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.